Tom is going to come and uh, bring us the reading in a second. But um, the reading is, uh, shall we say, a healthy length. So I thought I'd just give a quick preface to um, help us have some pegs to hang uh, our thinking on. Where we are in the story, because we're in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, where we are in the story is um, Nehemiah and his people um, have managed to finish their great building project of building the walls. But the great building project of rebuilding the people of Jerusalem has only just begun. And as we saw last week, God is beginning to move powerfully among uh, the people. And uh, last week, we looked at kind of them coming to celebrate together and uh, learn under Ezra, the teacher. But this week, we find them gathering together for a day of national repentance, a day of national confession. And as we hear the prayer that they pray together, what I want us to look out for um, is the structure, if you like, the shape of the prayer. And two things I particularly want us to notice. One is um, how it begins. And the second is, look out for this, um, the yous and the theys. Um, it goes backwards and forwards between the yous, where they're talking about God, and the theys, or the we's, where they talk about themselves. And just uh, follow along with that and see what it says about God's relationship with his people. Over to you, Tom. So the reading is Nehemiah chapter 9, um, and that can be found on page 493 of the Pew Bibles. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another and quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenaniah, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise, because you are righteous." You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. 
They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Zion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you were a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them and the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seal to it. This is the word of the Lord. I think that deserves a round of applause. Amazing. Well, I, um, I don't know what you think about when you think of the idea of confession, coming to confession. Uh, maybe you think about a priest in a box uh, and someone listening to confessions in a, in a confession box. Maybe you... Um, Think about 
saying a confession liturgy almost too fast and not being able to really think about what you're saying. Maybe you just think about feeling guilty. Maybe you haven't thought about it at all. Um, Well, whatever our feelings or our associations with the idea of confession, confession is a really, really important part of our faith. Possibly even uh, the defining act of our Christian faith. Confession is about getting right with God. Getting right with God. And while I've been reading and rereading and studying this passage, um, two things have really jumped out at me. One is, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is that we can get right with God. That this whole passage assumes that we, we can come and get right with the God who, who loves us. And, and secondly, the thing that's come home to me again and again is how seriously Nehemiah and his people take this. How, how they make this something they set aside time for, they think about, and they do together. So I've come to wonder, wonder about myself, but also wonder for us. Where does confession feature in, in our lives? Does it feature at all? in our prayer lives? Is this something important to us? Is it something that we do regularly? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at Nehemiah's uh, confession prayer, and we're going to look at the different parts of the prayer. And the hope is that as we do that, we're going to see a bit more, first of all, about what confession actually is. And then also we're going to see about how we can make confession a regular part in our own life with God. So do you want to pray with me as we, as we begin? Lord, we thank you for this amazing moment in the history of Israel. We thank you for this amazing prayer that we can learn from. We pray that as we apply ourselves to understanding it, that your spirit would lead us to understand more about who you are and what it means to get right with you. Amen. Great. Well, Nehemiah's prayer. I asked you to take a look at the beginning of the prayer uh, as we were reading it. And um, right off the bat, as we uh, we read Nehemiah's prayer, we get a sense that uh, things are heading off in a different direction to how we might normally think about starting a confession prayer, certainly the way I might think about it. I don't know whether you noticed this, but actually there isn't any confession for quite a long time. Um, In fact, there is no mention of any wrongdoing or anything bad or any sin for at least the first 10 verses of this prayer of so-called confession. Instead, instead, the people start their, play, their prayer in a different way. They start their prayer by recounting a story. It's a story about the relationship of God with his people. They start by reminding themselves, by reminding themselves who the God is that they come to and what they're doing when they're coming to get right with him. 
Now, we could just, we could just skip over this. We could just be like, great, lovely story, moving on. But I think it's really, really important, absolutely integral, in fact, to what is happening in this prayer. So we're going to begin by looking at three major yous that are in the prayer. Three uh, things, three places where the, the Israelites put stakes in the sand. They remind themselves uh, about three things um, that are true about God uh, before they even come to any kind of confession. The first you uh, is, is actually uh, several yous altogether, but they all come together in verses 6, 7, and 9. You can read with me there if you want to. Verse, verse 6, you made the heavens and everything else, and you give life to everything. Then verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. And then verse 9, you saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt and you saved them. Here is the first and most basic thing that we have to remember when we come to getting right with God. And that is that our God is a good God who wants to have a relationship with us. Our God is a good God who wants to have a relationship with us. Now that sounds uh, so, so basic, I know. But you know there are many, many people who don't know that. There are many, many people that we live with, work with, maybe even in our families, who don't know that there is a good God who loves them, has good plans for them, and wants them to know him. I think often when uh, we come to the topic of getting right with God, or we come to confession, we often start by looking at ourselves, don't we? we start at particularly focusing on our own failings, our own failures, the things we're feeling bad about at that point. And so we end up starting this process with a sense that God is against us, that he's out to get us, that somehow he's, he's turned his back to us and we have to tap him on the shoulder to get him to turn around again. And so we start with... Um, the sense that we have to take the first step. You know, like in a, in a relationship where you've fallen out with someone and you're sort of, it's begrudgingly, you think, am I going to be the person who has to start this kind of, am I going to be the one who has to say sorry to start this? And the thing is, when we go and uh, share with our friends, we want many of our friends and uh, family to know about um, and get right with God. We often start with them and their failings and forget and forget there's a good God who loves us, that they don't, may not even know that. But Nehemiah and the people don't start there. They don't start with themselves or their failings. They start by looking at God and his goodness. And in particular, they start by reminding themselves, recounting to themselves the key moments at the beginning of God's relationship with his people. And they remind themselves that all of these were God's initiative. God made the first move. God never 
had to create us, they remind themselves. He was under absolutely no obligation to bring us into being, but he did because he loves us. God never had to call Abraham. He never had to make any promises to Abraham to put himself under any kind of obligation to give him the land of the Canaanites or any other good thing. God never had to save Israel or make them his people. These were acts of pure generosity. These were acts of love, or, or to use a biblical word, grace. It was God who took the first step towards the people of Israel. And they remind themselves, they put a stake in the sand before they go any further. Our God is a good God who loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. And it's so important that when we come to this topic of getting right with God, that we start at this point too. In, um, in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, as we sometimes call it, there is a place for praying Forgive us our sins. And it's a really important part of the prayer, and we shouldn't miss it. But that line is not at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. That's not how it starts. It starts with our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Just as with the people of Israel of old, God has taken the initiative in this relationship with us. Most clearly we see that in Jesus. Jesus who came to show us what God is like. Jesus came to show us that God loved us, that he was for us, invited us to be his people and to follow him. But also each one of us can look back into our own stories, into our own lives, and put a stake in the sand and say, you know what, Lord, I remember that it was you who did the first move. It was you who took a hold of me. It was you who was always one step ahead of me. The people you put into place, the things that you spoke to me. Don't forget those parts of the story. We too can begin our confession by recounting to God, you, you, you. The first thing to put in the sand, first mark in the sand when we get right with God is he is a good God and he wants a relationship with us. The second key you that Nehemiah and the people recount can be found in verse 13, verse 13, where they recount, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right. The next uh, stake they put in the sand, the next thing they recall, is that in the story of God uh, and his people, having taken the initiative in calling Abraham, having uh, saved the people of Israel, they recall that on Mount Sinai, he then gave to them his commands. He revealed himself and he gave to him gave to to the people the good way of life that he was calling them to live, the way of life that pleased him. 
And I just want to make two very simple points from this. The first is that it should matter to us what God thinks about our lives. It should matter to us what God thinks about our lives. I know, again, very basic. Maybe it should go without saying. But I think it does need saying. We live in a world which, by and large, does not care one jot what God thinks. We work with people, maybe even live with people, who go the whole day without once thinking about who God is, what he might think about them, or how they're living. And in fact, we live in a world which is increasingly, increasingly mocks people who might think about putting God at the top of that list of, of opinions. <laughs> what God thinks as the determining factor in how we live. And so there are times, there are times when we have to take ourselves in hand and we have to remind ourselves that what God thinks of our lives is the most important thing in our lives. It's the most important thing. In fact, when it really comes down to it, it's the only thing that matters in our lives. Right and wrong are not decided by our consciences. We can uh, be merrily marching on, thinking everything's fine, and be completely heading in the wrong direction. We can feel super guilty about something, and maybe it isn't a problem. Right and wrong are not decided by what society at large believes, or even our family or friends believe. Right and wrong isn't decided by an MP's vote or even a referendum. The real question, the real question is, what does God think of my life? And many of us, many of us uh, know this, and, and we believe it, and sort of try and live it out. But then I think we forget it when we come to getting right with God, when we come to confession. And as I said earlier, we start by looking at ourselves. We we, I mean, if you anything like me, start by asking, what do I feel guilty about? What is it that I want to get right in my life? What do I think needs changing? And then we bring those things to God, and we just assume, without thinking usually, that those must be the things that God wants to sort in my life, because that's what I think. And this is a, it's a very human, very human tendency um, Recent presents that um, I have bought Yana, my fiance, include uh, waterproof cycling trousers and an introduction to systematic theology. And uh, recent presents that she's bought me include a passion flower and mango scented candle. And uh, while I do love my candle, I think I'm beginning to see that maybe um, I should have asked um, a bit earlier, you know, is this just something that I want? <laughs> Or actually, am I giving things, or am I giving, you know, have I really stopped to ask, what does she think? What, you know, have I just assumed? But we do that all the time with God, don't we? If we want to get right with God, then the question is, the question is, what does God think? And that leads us on to the second point, really. 
that if we want to get right with God and care what he thinks, then we need to take God's word in scripture as the authority by which we live our lives. We need to let scripture, the Bible, be the plumb line, be the spirit level in our life. You know, we can't guess. We can't guess what God is like. We can't guess his character. We can't guess what his promises are for us or his warnings. We can't guess what pleases him or doesn't please him. And if we try and guess, we normally just get a distorted view of ourselves looking back in the mirror. But what Nehemiah and the people remind themselves here, they, they put a stake in the sand, they remind themselves, God has revealed himself. He came and he spoke to us. We don't need to guess. We don't need to guess. And you might know that here in verse 13, he's talking about the commands that God gave to his people on Mount Sinai. And that's, that's the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. We've got those. We've got them here in our Bibles. Later on, he talks about the prophets that God sent to, to speak to the people and to warn them and teach them. That's the writings of the prophets that we have right here in our Bibles. And today we are uh, in, in the privileged position of being able to look back on Jesus, the most clear self-disclosure of God. He came to show us what he's like. He came to show us what, he, what pleases him. And we have those accounts. We have those records of those who were with him here in Scripture. If we really care about what God thinks, then we've also got to believe this is like the most precious thing we can have. This is the plumb line for life. And, you know, this isn't just a theological point. It's like, well, thanks, Stuart. Thanks for telling me once again that the Bible's important. Great. I know that. But, but it's a really practical one as well. I mean, how come do you think Nehemiah and the people have come to a time of confession? You know, what, what, what has prompted that? Does that just come out of the blue? How come they've become felt convicted of these different things that they're confessing? How do they know what those things are and what they mean? It's not a coincidence. It's because they've started reading God's word again. It's because they've started reading God's word again. In chapter 8, the previous chapter, which we heard about last week, we saw that a, a revival had broken out amongst the people. And what do we find at the heart of that? People were gathering to hear Ezra teach from the book of the law for hours and hours and hours on end. And then here, I, I don't know whether you notice it, but in verse 3, it says um, that they started their big day of confession by reading the book of the law for a quarter of the day. When was the last time you sat down for a quarter of the day and read the book of the law? So here's a really practical tip for getting right with God for a time of confession. Do it with the Bible in hand. Do it with the Bible in hand. When we come to getting right with God, let's not just rush in and offload on him all the things that we've got on our chest. Um, we can do that as well. That is a wonderful thing to do. But let's stop and actually ask God 
is there anything you want to highlight? We can do that by praying, but also we can ask him, Lord, is there anything in your word, anything I've read recently that you want to highlight and speak into my life about? Or even better, I suggest, why don't we, why don't we make a time of confession, even if it's short, after we read the Bible? Every time we read the Bible, um, you know, as we might do that regularly, afterwards, sit down and ask God, Lord, is there anything you want to highlight that you want to say about my life? And if you feel today that you don't know anything about God and you've got no grasp of the Bible at all, we've got some John's Gospels at the back. Um, you know, don't feel bad. Just grab one of those on the way out. Have a read and, and ask, what, what is, God, what are you saying to me as I read this story of Jesus' life? God has revealed his good shape of life for us. And getting right with God starts with asking what he thinks about our lives. That's the second thing that they remind themselves, the second stake that they put in the ground. The third you, the third you that they recount is in verse 17, verse 17, where we read, they say, they, that's our ancestors, our people, refuse to listen to these commands of yours or to remember you, but you... But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But you are a forgiving God. Now, uh, when I was younger and I did something wrong, which was extremely rare, extremely rare. And in my household, um, you know, there are only two really big wrong things you could get wrong. One was outright lying and one was outright direct disobedience. When I did something I was directly told not to do, or the other way around, whatever. Um, and then, if I did something wrong, there was a procedure. There was a procedure. So, first of all, first of all, I would be sent up to my parents' room to have a little bit of thinking time. Okay, great. And then, one of my parents would come up, preferably the one I hadn't annoyed, and they would come up and... I would have to explain to them why, uh, what I'd done wrong and why I was going to be punished, which I think was the worst part of the whole thing. I had to explain to them what I'd done wrong. And then I was punished, whatever the punishment was. And then there was always uh, a, a part which was making up with my parents. So I would make up with both my parents. And there you go. I've just revealed my child, you know, you could probably psychoanalyze that, tell you all the reasons why I'm, I am who I am from there. And I, but I, whatever you think of that disciplinary procedure, one thing that I'm extremely grateful for, I really do thank God for, is that although my parents were relatively strict disciplinarians, I was never in doubt. And in fact, I don't think it ever even occurred to me that the discipline process would ever end in anything else than making up with my parents. I don't think I was ever in doubt that when it came to asking my parents for forgiveness, that they would forgive me. And I know, I'm, I'm very grateful for this, and I know that isn't the case for all of us, and I'm very grateful for it. But I have to say, it, it, it totally changed just the whole process, the way I saw it, the way I understood what was going on. 
to know that at the end, there was always going to be reconciliation with my parents. And you know, for us, this is true too. It is so important to remember when coming to get right with God, when coming to confession, that our God is a forgiving God who has promised to forgive us when we return to him. That is so important to know. When Nehemiah and the people come to confess their sin, they put another marker in the sand and they speak about the confidence on which they come to God and to confession. And they they say this in verse 17. They say, Lord, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding abounding in love. And I found it really interesting to find as I was reading through this that 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 isn't um, just something that they were kind of trying to butter God up with, kind of sort of like, look, Lord, you're, you're nice, aren't you? And that kind of thing. It wasn't just their description of him. They're actually quoting God's own words back to him from, from Exodus 34, when that original covenant was originally put in place. God had made a promise to them, the people of Israel, that yes, he would punish them when they walked away from him. But they also promised, promised him in these words, that when they turned back to him and asked for forgiveness, he would forgive them. They're like, Lord, you are on record as saying you promised you will forgive us. That is the confidence that we come to you in. And then they go on to recount throughout their history all the times that God had been faithful to that promise to forgive people when they came back to him. You know, and if they were confident of God's mercy and promised to forgive, then we should be even more confident of this. We who have the privilege of knowing Jesus and the cross of Christ who died for us, Jesus who died for us, who, um, as the writer of the book to the Hebrews says, Jesus who has obtained eternal redemption for us by his blood, who has once and for all done away with sin by the sacrifice of himself who has made a new and living way into the presence of God by his death. We've got to realize before we even start that confession is not about groveling to God. It's not about desperately hoping that today he's feeling merciful, that maybe, you know, know, he's kind of all over the place, but, but hopefully if we can just pull hard enough on his coattails, he'll forgive us. It's not about trying to twist his arm trying to get him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Confession is about taking God up on his promise to forgive when we confess our sins. As John writes in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we come to getting right with God, let us learn from Nehemiah and not think that it's going to be our confession itself that's the basis of all of this. But remember God's promise to forgive us. He is a forgiving God. So, Nehemiah and the people come to get right with God and they come before they get anywhere near their own wrongdoing. They come by putting three markers in the sand and we should take note note of these. First of all, they remind themselves that, God, uh, that it was God's gracious initiative, this relationship in the first place. He's a good God, and he loves them. 
Secondly, they remind themselves that it's God's view of them and God's view of the world that matters and that he has spoken about that to them. Finally, they remind themselves that God has promised to forgive and he's good to that promise. And then they come to confession and they do two things and I'm going to just cover these really briefly, really briefly. The first thing that they actually do is that they take responsibility. They take responsibility for their failings. Up until now in the prayer, they have been rehearsing the failings of a previous generation, if you like, those who've gone long before them. But then as we come towards the end of the prayer, you might have noticed they make a very intentional change in their language. And the whole prayer really comes to land on, on, on culminate on verse 33 where they say, in all this that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully, while we did wrong. Not they, we have done wrong. And then a couple of verses later in verse 37, they say, it's because of our sins, our sins. And it's, it's so simple but again, we often miss it. Some of us here today might actually never have come before God and honestly said to him, I've done wrong before you. You're in the right, but I take responsibility. I, I own the fact that before you, I have done wrong. And I need your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. And I want to ask us today, how often do we do this? Is this part of our prayer life, part of our relationship with God? I'm not saying how often do you feel bad about something? Or how often do you tell someone else you've done something bad? Or even uh, how often you try and change something in your life? I'm asking how often do we sit before God and kind of look him in the eye Take responsibility for something and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. And this is a really important part of our faith. It's, it's predicated on all the stuff that's gone before about who God is. But this is the heart of confession. Taking responsibility before God. And it's vital to getting right with him. And so I don't want to say anything more about that. Except that I just want to encourage us to do it. This doesn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by accident for Nehemiah. They had to put space in the diary for it. And I also want to encourage us that as we do it, let's do it, let's be specific. Let's not just come to God and say, oh, I, I confess or I'm sorry for this general thing or feeling bad in general. Let's be willing to name things before him, things we've said or done or desires that are kind of ruling over us and just name them before him and say, Lord, I own that this is my part in this, and I ask for your forgiveness. So that's the first thing they do. They take responsibility. The second thing they do is they renew their commitment to following God. They renew their commitment to following God. And we see that in the final verse of the whole chapter, where we read, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting in writing uh, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seal to it. 
And if you read on, you'll see that's a renewed commitment to following God and to his law. And this is really important because it reminds us, as we notice it, it reminds us that the aim of confession is not just conscience cleansing. Confession is part of a much bigger arc, a much bigger movement. It's about getting back on track with God. I think we're often tempted to make confession just all about the moment, all about the moment where we bring things to God and then kind of forget it afterwards. And I think sometimes, therefore, we're we're prone to judging the quality of our confession by this kind of, how bad did I feel while I was confessing? Was I really convicted? And then afterwards, did I have a really deep sense of peace? And of course, if we're really engaging with God honestly, we would hope that we do have a sense of conviction. We hope that we do, as we have confidence God forgives us, have a sense of peace. But the aim of confession is also to get back on the horse, to get going again with God. It's part of changing direction, allowing God to recenter north on him, getting a, a renewed commitment to following God. And again, this is not just a theological point. It's really practical Practical because we can incorporate this into our time of confession. We can actually do this. First of all, we can ask for God's help. You know, once we've asked for forgiveness, we can ask him to help us going forward. Uh, again, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer and we read that we ask to pray, forgive us our sins. But then straight after, we're invited to pray, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's like, Lord, Lord, forgive me. I own what has gone in the past, and I give that to you. Forgive me. Now help me as I go forward. Help me today to follow you again. But as well as praying, we can also, uh, it's really helpful to put a plan in place put a practical plan in place about how we're going to go forward. I can't recommend this enough, really. Maybe that involves um, uh, sitting down with God and praying about it, but then it might involve telling someone or or, um, uh, asking for help or reading a book or getting rid of something in our lives or putting something in our diary. But whatever it is, it's good to spend time with God and ask before we rush off, before we rush away from that time, Okay, Lord, I want to get back on the horse with you. I want to be following you again. I want to renew my commitment to you. What is that going to look like practically tomorrow? And put that in place. So we've come to the end. We've come to the end of Nehemiah's prayer, and we've kind of flown through it, I know. And we could have stopped at any one point and done a whole sermon. Um, But what I hope we've achieved at the cost of depth is we've managed to get an overall picture of the shape of this prayer. And the reason I've decided to do that is because I really do think that this is something that we can do. This is a prayer that we can take away, a shape for our getting right with God that we can actually put in place. First of all, I want us to be encouraged by Nehemiah that it is a good thing to do. This is so valuable. What a privilege to come and get right with God. Secondly, to take it seriously, to sort of say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this in the diary. But then also to learn from Nehemiah and the people these five steps that we can actually put in place 
first by, by reminding ourselves some things about God. Maybe by putting on a worship song or something and spending some time reminding ourselves that God is good, that he loves us, that he, he, he longs for us to return to him. Think of all the things he's done in our lives and before. Think about Jesus. And then take some time, sit down with the Bible, sit down in prayer and ask God, Lord, remembering that it's what you think that matters. And what are you, what are you saying to me? What do you want to highlight? Then reminding ourselves of the basis on which we come before God. Reminding ourselves of the promise of forgiveness in Christ. The sureness of that. And then come and actually, after all of that, actually sit before God and say to him, look him in the eye and say, I accept responsibility. Please forgive me. And finally, renewing our commitment to him and and actually spending time praying about that, praying into the issue, and putting a plan in place. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that as we do that, as we actually sit down and go through those points, as we learn from this and put it into place, that we'll discover that confession is life-giving. Coming to God and getting right with him is an amazing thing. We'll start to come back to where it starts. A good God who, who, who loves us, has good plans for us. And as we'll see in the rest of Nehemiah, this is the beginning of great things in in that time in Israel's period, where they, they really put a stake in the sand and said, Lord, I want to get back following you. So let's do it. <laughs> Let me pray for us as we finish. Lord, we thank you for this amazing invitation to get right with you. We pray that you would embed this story in our lives of your goodness, of your grace. We pray that we would come to be people who care more about what you think about us than anyone else. And we pray that you'd make us into a people who regularly come before you in confession, knowing that you are good and you are a forgiving God. Thank you for this chapter in Nehemiah, and we pray that you be with us as we continue to process it. Amen.